0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson. I'm here, but I'm not alone because the other co-host is Jasmine Allnut. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so, Jasmine, we're kind of doing a civil war theme right now, aren't we? Yeah, we
1: kind of just suddenly launched into this. Yes. But that was great. When you did
0: Sojourner Truth, I right. was just like, oh, I know who I should do. Yes, and Jasmine <laughs> has the idea that maybe we'll get a little more organized. Because so far we've just <laughs> kind know. of been picking and choosing our favorites. Right, but right. I'm not even done with my favorites. Oh, I'm not either. And you know, and we did kind of go
1: with mission missionaries more or less yes you know we've more or less stayed on point yes yes Uh, but some were
0: just people that became missionaries so what can you say
1: that's true like lady cowman yeah stuff like that (laughs) so who do you have for us today so today we are going to be looking at harriet beecher
0: stowe whoa i know and i'm very excited my eyes have seen the glory (laughs) (laughs) there we go so that's what she's most known for writing the hymn right no i'm sorry
1: that was was that how julie Ward?
0: yes yes sorry i get those two dude mixed we should up all do that time. one too yes it's because they have three names that's right i get the three name people mixed up uh, all the time that's But that's right be, hey that we could definitely do so her. so we're that's talking now the author of uncle tom's yes Cabin. the other one <laughs> and some of you might uh have
1: heard of her in a history class but this is why i'm excited to do her um uh, because she wrote, like Cheryl said, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the most important anti-slavery work ever written. And it's actually one of the most significant just books in history. In fact, at one point, fun fact, it was the number three bestseller in all of
0: history, in, in all of uh, literature of all time. Wow! Now, you know, like when he books. met her— He looked at her and said, so you're the woman who started the Civil War. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. And that's what happened with this book. Um, One historian said it was like uh, it was perhaps the most influential novel novel ever written, a verbal earthquake and ink and paper tidal wave. And it was considered one of the key influences in bringing slavery uh, to the forefront of the American conscience and really waking everybody up. And then ultimately, they, you know, It's really pretty clear that it helped trigger the Civil War nine years later. And that was when, yes, Abraham Lincoln said that to her. So this is the little lady who made this big war because it really had. Yeah, you're exactly right. It had that kind of an impact and an influence. But one of the reasons I'm really excited to tell her story is because her Christian faith has kind of been glossed over. If you look in history books, they're mostly going to talk about just Uncle Tom's Cabin or maybe the fact that she, uh, they they call her like maybe an early feminist because she was pro-suffrage and all that sort of thing. They focus on all her social activities. In fact, I did a... Um, my first research paper I did for my uh, grad school, I did on Uncle Tom's Cabin. I wanted to do it because I read the book and I loved it. And I was looking up stuff on her. And if you look at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in um, Connecticut, on the website, they hardly even mention the fact that she was a Christian. I think it's in one little tiny spot. It's just completely glossed over, but that informed everything she did. This is actually one of the reasons I'm so passionate about history is setting the record straight and letting people know the true story. Because she wouldn't have done anything that she did if it wasn't for Jesus motivating her, just like with everybody we've been talking about. And so that's why I really wanted to share about her. And that's why, like I said, I was so glad when uh, Cheryl did Sojourner Truth because I was like, oh, good. Now I can launch into this stuff. So, (laughs) okay, so she was born in Litchfield, Connecticut. Uh, Her dad was a congregationalist minister and reformist theologian, and his name was Lyman Beecher. You might have heard of him as well because he was pretty well known. Um, and he, his wife was Roxana, and so the Beecher family was very biblical, biblically minded. They were Puritans, you know, they're living up in New England, but they weren't the staunch kind of Puritans you might be thinking about, the strict Calvinists and all that sort of a thing. In fact, her dad was what we would call a, a progressive Puritan. I remember that. L- that means. Liberal.
0: Yeah, liberal for back then. Yes. <laughs> well. Well, actually, I remember reading some of his aberrant uh, beliefs. Ooh, yeah, interesting. Like uh, the deity of Christ, and right, you know, certain things that we consider very crucial. Right.
1: Yeah, he could have wandered. He wandered off a little bit yes. on a couple things. Yes, <laughs> uh, but fortunately, she didn't. Um, but they believed because they were on the progressive side. They believed in a very socially active faith that sought to reform the culture instead of just, we hole away and hide away. We want to actually go out and help people. In fact, he was actually instrumental in founding the American Temperance Society, uh, the American Board for Foreign Missions, which I didn't realize, and the American Bible Society. So he played a
0: key role in that. Wow. Maybe that was before he went a little loopy. Who knows? Yeah, or maybe he went loopy and came back. Let's hope so. I think so. Yeah, because
1: at one point, there was this whole controversy with the Unitarians. I wonder if it was during that time and maybe he pulled out of it and came through. That would be awesome. So, everybody, look that up for yourself. Find out more about Lyman. Anyway, <laughs> just try. And so, yeah, just try. Uh, he, he had a very dynamic personality and faith, and that was, of course, passed on to his kids. In fact, he was called the father of more brains than anyone in America, um, because. Um, His kids, he had, oh, I can't remember how many children. I think he had like nine children or something. And this was included, but not limited to uh, his daughter, Isabella, who was part of the suffragist movement, women's right to vote in the early years before it was even really a thing. Uh, His daughter, Catherine, who was a reformer in education, and she was kind of a pioneer in women's education. She and Harriet actually launched a seminary, uh, a women's seminary at one point. And and it's kind of funny. She was actually opposed to women's suffrage. So she and Isabella must have butted heads a lot on that one. Um, and then he had a son, Henry Ward Beecher, who was one of the most famous preachers in that day. Um, he really emphasized the love
0: of God a lot in his sermons, which would have been, again, kind of unusual. And that would have been considered progressive. Yes. And liberal, just like George MacDonald back in uh, Scotland. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of always talking about right. sin and you need right. to get right with God and judgment.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Or works. Right. or works. Exactly. Works for sure. And so uh, he also, Henry Ward also crusaded for abolition and temperance and suffrage and all that stuff. But then, of course, there was Harriet, who was the sixth child, and she ended up being the most famous one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like a power family that she's coming from here. <laughs> uh, very, She was very precocious, um, very gifted as a writer, even from the time she was little. In fact, when she was 12, she wrote an essay called <laughs> I always think this is funny Can the immortality of the soul be proved by the light of nature? Like, whoa, I don't even know, I mean, how many 12-year-olds today can even spell immortality? So that's like (laughs) pretty amazing. I know, she was such a little smarty pants. And so, uh, but as a young woman, she was very shy, very introspective. She was a bookworm. She was socially what we would probably call a late bloomer. Um, And she kind of had to, when she was 21, she had to kind of make a mental decision. Okay, I'm going to reach out now. I'm going to start trying to step out and talk to more people, (laughs) And so, and it was sweet. She actually, when she was young, she didn't feel like she was really good for anything. You know, she has all these illustrious siblings and she's thinking, what in the world am I good for? And I'm so shy and I really need to work on this. And so it's sweet how the Lord would use her even in that. And that's encouraging for anyone out there who's feeling like, well, I'm shy and I don't know if I could ever. Now, did she have a difficult marriage? Yeah. No, you know, their marriage wasn't, hmm. He was an interesting—well, I'll get to him in a minute. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was—outsiders would look at it as challenging, but she loved him to death. Okay. So it was one of those yes. kind of a things. So she was a PK, and it actually took her a while to um, connect the dot with her own personal need for a savior. Um In fact, she said her dad's sermons were as unintelligible as Choctaw, which is a Native American language. She was just like, I have no idea what he's talking about. But it's so sweet because one Sunday he was uh, teaching on John 15, where Jesus says, I have not called you servants, but friends. And that just totally, radically changed her perspective. And like I said, in a culture around them that was so staunch and Calvinistic, and, and like you were saying, even gearing toward works, whether people realized it or not, they felt they had to, you know... Mind all, you know, mind their themselves and cross their T's and dot their eyes and do everything perfectly, you know. Just the thought that Jesus was actually a friend she could have a relationship with—that it was it was different than that, and and that it wasn't all about rules and stuff—that blew her mind. And so she really developed uh, a well reasoned faith because she was very intellectual, but it was very personal. And very intimate. In fact, um, one biographer said Harriet and her brother, Henry Ward Beecher, played a really huge role in placing a compassionate Jesus at the heart of mainstream Christianity. Oh, that's so good. And bringing that back in. And we see that. We're definitely going to see that when we get to Uncle Tom's cabin. Uh, her faith had become relational and not just religious. Now, I will say sometimes she got a little bit mystical. So did her husband. They could get a little bit like her husband saw angels in the room a lot and stuff like that. So they could get a little bit on the mystical side. But she was always centered on the love of Jesus, the availability of uh,
0: salvation to all people. And she had a, a good grounding in the world. You word. know, I just want to comment real quickly mm, that please. none of the people that we are looking at are perfect exactly. because there's no perfect person but jesus mm. and you know mm-hmm. anyone that you hang out with too long you're gonna find some kind of fault or like oh because we all have them yes and so we're not gonna agree with anybody 100 percent, yeah. except for jesus yeah sometimes we don't even agree with him we just have to obey yeah so i i think it's it, we don't discount these people we don't mm. like say well they're not worthy of knowing right just because they're um different than us or mm. you know they see angels <laughs> yeah because her husband saw angels we, <laughs> right we don't <laughs> throw these out. these people really love jesus and god yes love them and use them mm. and so continue on yes sorry.
1: no i'm so glad you said that because it's true yet you're going to find in mm-hmm. any biography like whoa what <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> because it's
1: different than us yes But yes, the Lord used her and the Lord was really using, like I said, that idea of relationship and the availability of salvation. These were all things that were going to play into the writing of her novel. And so um, since she was young, Harriet easily bonded with... um, the African-American people with the black people around her. Uh, remember, they lived up in New England, so they actually had uh, black servants, not slaves. They actually mm-hmm. you know, could earn their money right. and that sort of a thing. Uh, but they did have servants, and she got really close to the servants. In fact, um, it's thought that they probably helped shape some of the characters in the book.
0: Okay, but New England at that time, mm-hmm. they did have slavery. Yes, slavery And did they exist. did have servants. So, yes. I mean, sometimes we sanctify the North. Oh, and it wasn't all, yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't. In fact, there were a lot of <laughs> Northerners that were really upset when slavery mm-hmm. was abolished mm-hmm. so it was really i mean when we talk civil war we're talking oh, civil my gosh. war
1: yeah we think it's a powder keg now oh yes. my gosh it was yeah and that's a good point too because even if um even in places like pennsylvania right. where there was you know there weren't really very many slaves and the Maryland. quakers were there yeah Washington, but there was a lot of racism still yes Absolutely. dc right yeah so that's still the, the north wasn't perfect that's why right. i'm glad you mentioned that So her family moved to Ohio when she was 21 and her dad became a professor at Lane Seminary. And that was a big hub of abolitionist activity at the time. And so this was when Harriet and her sister opened up a women's seminary or school and she started doing some more writing, some writing during this time. And... um, her book, first book was actually a geography textbook. I'm like, "Oh my
0: gosh, how dry. That must have been real fun to write." <laughs> Just like the paper she wrote when she was 12. Yeah, exactly. She had to, yeah, she had to work on that a little bit, <laughs> liven it up. Yeah, it is interesting though that when you do get to Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's such a um, emotional. It is. And grabbing and descriptive book. Yes, nothing like her yeah. early writing. <laughs> yes.
1: And so uh, it was at this time she actually met Calvin and Eliza Stowe. So they were a young married couple, and he was a young professor at Lane. And um, they all started a little literary club together. It was so cute. They called it the Semicolon Club. I thought that was cute. (laughs) And this was when Harriet really started to work on her writing skills. And this was cool. They all come, would come together and write things and then present them. Kind of like uh, C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Tolkien and those guys. And so she started to really work out the kinks, I think, in her writing at this during this time. And they got really close and um, were such good friends. And then the following year, Eliza died um, in a cholera epidemic. And Harriet and Calvin both were just devastated. Um, but over the course of time, I think over the next year or two, they became closer. They were already good friends. And eventually in 1836, they were married and, uh, they had seven kids, five in the first four years of marriage. God bless her. I'm just like, man, these women were part rabbit. Five in the first four years? Yes. Twins. There must've been twins. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. Let's do the math on this. (laughs) Maybe two sets of twins. I probably should have checked on this. Yeah. (laughs) So um, Calvin, and, you know, he was um, gifted academically. He actually wrote some uh, academic textbooks that, believe it or not, sold well, probably in the academic community. He was really uh, intelligent and quite an intellectual, but he was also very moody. Mm -hmm. And he was a hypochondriac. He was not a great breadwinner. He would stress out a lot because if his writing, if his books weren't selling and things like that, he would just get kind of neurotic and... And worked up all the time. He was definitely the pessimist in the relationship, more of an Eeyore. But it's really sweet. So yes, they did have a challenging marriage, but it was mostly what people saw from the outside. A lot of people looked at him and they were like, what do you see in this guy? He's just so, and he's absent-minded. And he, you know, if there's ever an emergency, he would freak out and be completely useless. I mean, he was just kind of an absent-minded professor, but she adored him and they both had a very similar sense of humor, and they both loved literature. They both uh, developed a real heart for um, the slaves, and that was a big. Th- those these were all big things that really mm-hmm. bind, yes, yes, bound them together. Just that same heart. And so uh, in spite of the fact, like I said, when they started to reach financial difficulties and stuff, but during that time, that was when Harriet said, okay, well, I'll start writing articles. Let's just see if I can help a little bit. And people loved what she wrote because they said her writing style was like conversation on paper. Mm. Like I said, it started to really develop, like you were saying, Uncle Mm -hmm. Tom, very vivid Mm -hmm. and very emotional and graphic. And so um, Harriet, in her late 20s, early 30s, she went through some health trials, As she was writing these articles, they're trying to make ends meet. Um, It's possible, we think now, that she probably had postpartum depression at one point from after one of her pregnancies. Uh, And then in 1843, her brother George died in like a tragic shooting. And they were Mm. never sure if it was a suicide or a murder. So it was like, Mm. or sorry, not a murder, a suicide or an accident. Mm. And so that was really hard to reconcile. Like what happened here? And she was just convinced it was an accident. But some people weren't sure. So that was really devastating and then uh her baby boy uh, Charlie died of cholera. So all of these just really heartbreaking heartrending um events in her life that were pretty traumatic. And yet it was interesting when her uh when her son Charlie died she wrote and this was her prayer she said that the crushing of my own heart might enable me to work out some great good for others wow and so what we see here and this was something i was reading through my notes and i was thinking gosh this is kind of like mary slessor with all the mm-hmm. trials, trials and hardships if you could remember back to that episode folks um where all of those hardships and heartbreak and heartache Uh, really made her more compassionate. She allowed the Lord to take those things and and use them to work out something for other people instead of just to become bitter or isolated or angry. She allowed the Lord to heal and to move and work in her own heart. So beautiful, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's so cool. In fact, when Charlie died, she told a friend, she said, it was at his dying bed and at his grave that I learned what a poor slave mother may feel when her child is torn away from her. Now, this was revolutionary because, uh, you know, at that time, I mean, nobody
0: thought the slaves even had feelings or emotions. That's right. That's right. They didn't think that they could take care of their own children because they didn't think that they could be um, motherly.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, they're like, oh, they don't know what's best. Right. So, this was kind of revolutionary for her mm-hmm. to suddenly have this empathy and to think, like, oh, these mm-hmm. slaves moms must feel mm-hmm. this way when, right. you know, their babies are taken away from them and sold sal- for their south. And so again, this is all leading up to her writing. Uh, not only that, but while they were in Ohio, the Stoes became part of the Underground Railroad, which is a, a secret network of escape routes which would bring the slaves up north and on into Canada sometimes. We'll talk more about that later, the Underground Railroad. That's right. We get, yes. A little teaser there. We've got so much to oh say Oh my gosh. It. Oh my goodness. But that really convinced Harriet that the slaves were created in the image of God. They were worthy of freedom and dignity, uh, just like anybody else. And so she and Calvin and they actually began to take risks in order to free the slaves. Uh, one time in the middle of the night, Calvin took this young slave woman um, 10 miles across like these rough roads with potholes and mud and everything to a safe house to um, help her escape from her master. So they were willing to put themselves on the
0: line a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, there were bounty hunters. Oh, yeah. Oh, that everywhere. Were, that yep. I mean, they were after anybody who had a slave. Oh, yeah. And they were armed and dangerous. Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. Because so, the
0: masters offered high rewards yeah. for oh, the yeah. return of their slave. And they actually hired these men.
1: Yeah, and so they, they would stop at nothing. And That's so right. you really, I mean, you really were taking kind mm-hmm. of your
0: life and mm-hmm. your livelihood into your own hands. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Holocaust if you took a, yeah, you exactly. know, like Corrie Tinboom taking yes. the juice into her home. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly.
1: And so in 1850, they moved to Maine. The Stowe's moved to Maine and Calvin kind of needed a fresh start, like in work Mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing and financially. And Harriet wanted to really write again. And her sister said, hey, if I could use a pen the way you can, I would write something that will make the whole nation feel what an accursed thing slavery is. Excellent. And Harriet was like, really? I mean, I I guess. So she was thinking about it, but she didn't really have any inspiration. But it was so cool. One Sunday, she was um, at church and taking communion. And in the middle of communion, she's just praying. And all of a sudden, the Lord gave her a vision of the end of the book, Uncle wow. Tom's Cabin, where she has this, uh, she seed, she seed, <laughs> she saw Uncle Tom's triumphant death at the hands of this cruel slave master. Mm. Sorry for the spoiler alert, he does die. But that's how the book came into existence, was because she had this vision from the Lord. Uh, during church. In fact, later when people would ask her about her inspiration and about the book, she would just say, "Oh, I didn't write it. The Lord did." Mm. I mean, she really believed this was divinely inspired, and it really seems like it when you look at the impact. And even if you read it, which I really encourage everyone to do, it's such a good it's such a good book. Anyway, and it's so cool, like I said, to see how much of her own life and experience is, you know, woven throughout the book, and how the Lord uses everything in our lives for a purpose. I mean, who knew that it was going to end up coming out in this book. In fact, it's really interesting because after she published it, the Southern newspapers raked her over the coals. They hated her. I mean, if I could read some of the articles, it's like, oh my gosh, you actually said that about a person? Mm. They were so mad at her. And they said, she's making this up. This is sensationalized. These are lies. And so she published another book called The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm. And it told all of her sources. It cited everything,
0: everybody she interviewed, her own experiences to kind of shut them up. (laughs) Because, you know, I— I cried when I read that book. I, I mean, Oh, I know. I was a mess. It's so good. <laughs> but the the other thing about it is it's not half the story mm. of how bad slavery was. It's not. Exactly. She cleans up a lot of she things. She does. And tries
1: to be tasteful. Right. So, yes, exactly. And there is so much of the gospel in this book. That's why it's just—it blows my mind that in history classes and things and, you know, in public schools and stuff, they won't talk about it this because that's what motivated and drove the entire book was the gospel principle and biblical principles. In fact, Uncle Tom becomes kind of like a Christ-like figure. Mm-hmm. Um he's this he's the most gracious, the most patient, the most forgiving and noble figure in the whole book. And uh you know, again, this was revolutionary at that time. She really elevated the African American in a way that nobody else was doing, um, and I, you've said this before. I think even over in our Mark challenge study, how everything Jesus touches becomes elevated, like yes. better. I can't remember the wording you used, but that's kind of what this Sanctify was. Clean, sanctified. Yes. yes, he just elevates everything, and that's what you know she was doing by presenting Jesus in this format. Uh, You know, as the God of the slave, as well as the. Isn't that so true? Because Jesus
0: said, Inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. Yes. And you know, when he was talking, he said, If you clothe someone who's naked, if you Mm. feed someone who's starving, in. That's you're doing it to me. Yes, and when you beat somebody, when you mm. treat somebody cruelly, you're doing that to me. I think of Paul, yes, uh, the apostle, where Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Yes, you know, and how personally um, the Lord takes it. Yes, exactly. There's also a scripture, real quick, in Lamentations that <laughs> says, "In all their affliction, he was afflicted."
1: Mm, I love you know? that. Yeah. Me yes, too. that is the heart of Jesus, mm-hmm. and she got it. She mm-hmm. realized I love this. it and really. Uh, brought that to the forefront and kind of like what you're saying she really awakened the christian conscience because that is the truth of scripture right. it's like guys that's right let's really think about this mm-hmm. she humanized the slaves and caused people to empathize nobody mm-hmm. had empathized with black people in this way before there were and there's a lot of anti-slavery literature well, but it was had more, more lecturing right,
0: right right yeah and
1: well, sorry what oh. white
0: people yeah so we were talking about you know,
1: Yeah. She was bringing yeah, yeah. the African person to yes. a place of dignity. And it's a beautiful story, but it's also an appeal. And that's something I love about this. When she closed the book, she said, Christians, every time you pray that the kingdom of Christ may come, can you forget that prophecy associates the day of vengeance with the year of his redeemed? Both North and South have been guilty before God, and the Christian mm-hmm. church has a heavy account to answer. Not by combining together to protect injustice and cruelty is this union to be saved, but by repentance, justice, mercy. And so she appealed to Northerners and to Christian Southerners to take a stand and to remember the scriptures, like you were saying. And she said this to the Southerners, and I think this is really kind of cool. To you, generous, noble-minded men and women of the South, you whose virtue and magnanimity and purity of character are the greater for the severe trial it has encountered, to you is her appeal. Have you not in your own secret souls felt there are woes and evils in this accursed system beyond what are here shadowed? And so I love this because she said, you guys, you're better than this. And she doesn't demonize the South, but she still exposes the ugliness of slavery, but she's appealing to them. And I think that that's such an important thing even today for us to consider because we're in Mm -hmm. some pretty volatile times right now, Um, at at least here in America. (laughs) For those of you who are listening overseas, you know, hopefully. Um, Someone at the Morning Post in Boston actually said, and I think this is what's lacking in our discourse today. He said, Mrs. Stowe has the high ability of looking on both sides of one question. Mm. And that was her strength, the ability to look at the North and the South in a fair light and point both to Christ. She mm-hmm. said, Hey, we're all, we all need to repent here. Like you were mm-hmm. saying, Cheryl, the North was not like yes. perfect little angels running around. <laughs> yes. And, and I think today, you know, we have such a culture of extremes where we're not looking at the whole picture on anything and we don't appeal, we lecture. And so just reviewing this and going back over her story this the last couple of weeks has really encouraged me. Like, I wanna appeal and Mm -hmm. and appeal to the heart and that's why she was so effective she wasn't lecturing like the other abolitionists she was coming at the heart and employing the gospel and i think like i said because this was something the lord
0: gave her that's what made it so effective there was a divine wind well also she was using the gift that god had given her yes which is you know we need to use the gifts that Mm. god has given us Mm. in the god-given way that he wants us to use these gifts
1: yes amen absolutely and so she became famous and to Southerners, infamous, yes, <laughs> nationally and internationally. You know, you can see articles where her book was being published in France and in England, all over Europe, all around, the, all over the place. And so, um, she and Calvin even went to England. they met the Archbishop of Canterbury. they met Charles Dickens, which is kind of funny to think of all these people as being contemporary with one another. Yes, it's like oh, they all lived at the same time that's I mean Archbishop has always been there an archbishop of some sort but you know yes. Charles Dickens it's like that's kind of cool because he was you know a real advocate for the poor in his country mm-hmm. so a little kindred spirit there-hmm. And so she got really pushed to the forefront of the anti-slavery movement, kind of one of the poster children for that, even though her book was published in 1852 and it was still eight, nine years till the war broke out. 1865. 1860. Yep, Yep, exactly. And so that kind of, you know. Uh, it was a it was it was just interesting. actually it's kind of amazing to me that it took that long for the war to happen mm-hmm. <laughs> because everything was just well you needed the right president such a yes you did absolutely it was becoming such a powder keg mm-hmm. I know that's a mercy of the Lord too seriously so uh, she continued to crusade as Abraham Lincoln got elected and then the Civil War breaks out in 1861 and goes till 1865 like you said and so um, she played a really big role in bringing slavery to. Uh, the forefront of the conflict. One historian said Uncle Tom's Cabin was the wedge that finally rent asunder the gigantic fabric of American slavery with a fearful crash. Um, even better, though, this is kind of neat. I didn't realize this, but. Uh, A lot of people got saved after reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was almost like a tract. Wow. And it brought a lot of people to Christ. It actually stimulated the sales of Bibles uh, around the nation and the world. And um, it was even used as a Sunday school textbook because there's so much of the gospel in it and so many biblical principles. And so you really see the power of God through a novel. And I just think, like I said,
0: it became the third bestseller in history. Let me say this, too, because there are a lot of people who were for— The abolition of slaves. But they still felt like the black people were less than. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was one thing that she did, too, is she showed, uh, like you said, the humanity and the equality. Um, Another thing I was thinking about, um, uh, Jordan, one of the pastors on staff, has this um, article that has to do with how even Lincoln— um mm. was yeah. prejudice yeah. even though he's yeah. an abolitionist until he met frederick Douglass, mm. and when he sat cool. down and saw the brilliance of frederick Douglass mm. and how he talked to him um lincoln was changed mm. and he said that that conversation completely changed him
1: oh i love amazing that. huh i love that and so yes humanizing it's so right. imp- it's just that was such a huge dignifying thing. and dignifying mm-hmm. exactly so uh, Uncle Tom, it actually went, it went mainstream into popular culture. Like on every level, you'd have uh, Uncle Tom dishware. No. And yes. Isn't that random? I know. Yes. Children's books, games, um, playing cards, you name it. They had Uncle Tom towels, everything. It was so funny how it just went all over the culture. <laughs> I bet that stuff's
0: worth so much money right
1: now. Oh, heck yeah. If you could find one of those folks, if you f- have any of that in your attic. So
0: <laughs> it'd be um, like on an antique road show. I can see it already. Yes, now.
1: Totally. <laughs> So she kept writing magazine articles, books, poetry uh, throughout the rest of her life. Nothing ever reached that level. Uh, when her husband died in 1886, she withdrew from the public life and she died peacefully in Massachusetts. But I want to wrap up just with this one one more quote. Uh, and this is something she wrote about Uncle Tom's cabin. Mm-hmm. And I think it summarizes uh, everything we've been saying so well. She said, this story is to show how Jesus Christ, who lives and was dead and now is alive and forevermore, has still a mother's love for the poor and lowly, and that no man can sink so low, but that Jesus Christ will stoop and take his hand. Hmm. Who so low, so poor, so despised is the American slave. The law almost denies his existence as a person and regards him for the most part as less than a man, a mere thing, the property of another. He can do nothing, possess nothing, acquire nothing, but what must belong to his master. Yet, even to this slave, Jesus Christ stoops from where he sits at the right hand of the Father and says, Fear not thou whom man despiseth, for I am thy brother. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. That's so precious. That's so cool. So, That's so good. Wow. Well, I this is yourself. definitely she's a woman we should know. Yes, absolutely. And if you have any women that you think we should know about, we've been getting some good suggestions. And don't worry, we
0: are writing them all down. Yes, and we will get there eventually. Yes. You should see. We both have some. Oh my gosh. To to read and to work through. But Uh, also if you have someone we we should know or someone in your life or you just want to write into us a comment or something that touched your heart, please. We would love to hear that. This is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Onlet saying thank you for joining us today and hearing about a woman we think you should know. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK at We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends.